monks in the Middle Ages had loads of metaphors to describe what it was like to lose focus. Distractions were snakeskins that needed to be shed, flies that needed to be swatted away. It was a hair poking in your eye, a dust cloud. The historian Jamie Kreiner says this litany of these metaphors show the relentless efforts these monks made to capture the experience of what was going on in their brains when their minds started to wander. Monks, she says in a new book, were committed to this idea that you could train your mind and your body to pay more attention to the things in life that matter. They never solved this problem entirely, but Kreiner says their struggles and their successes offer a guide for those of us today who feel constantly distracted. What a monk can tell us about distraction on Radio West after this. If you're a member of KUER, thank you so much. If you're looking for another way to support this station, consider donating a vehicle you no longer need. Your unwanted vehicle can drive KUER forward. It's easy, it's free to you, and the proceeds really do help KUER bring you the news you count on. Learn more and get started today at KUER.org vehicle. Medieval monks were really worried about becoming distracted. In a new book, the historian Jamie Kreiner explains why. She says the idea was to connect their minds to God and to become so focused that they could get to a state of attention that would transcend space and time. Most monks weren't good at it, this kind of focus, so they would pass around the stories of the ones who were – Like the monk named Hor, who lived in his church for 20 years without looking up. Or Sarah, who lived next to a river for 60 years and never once, never once looked at it. James prayed so long outside, he became covered with snow. Kreiner says monks of the Middle Ages shared these stories to reassure themselves that men and women were capable of this kind of concentration because they saw themselves as obligated to fight against distraction. That struggle, she says, was their professional identity. It's what made a monk a monk. And Kreiner told us they saw one of the sources of distraction as the devil, demons. One metaphysical source of distraction is the result of antagonism and this perpetual battle that demons have with humanity. They're trying to lure people away from good things, and one of the ways they do that is they make the mind distracted. Some even envisioned it really in terms of combat. The demons shoot these kinds of cognitive arrows that plant in people's minds and make them start thinking about how they wish they were at home where stuff was a lot fancier and more abundant or how tired they were and how they didn't want to keep reading. Monks felt that these demonic attacks were so savvy, were so adept at bringing monks astray that they asked sometimes even, are demons mind readers? The answer was, no, demons aren't mind readers. They just are very good analysts of the external signs of what you're doing. They know people really well. (laughs) And then on a less personalized level, distraction also came from just that fracturing of the world as a whole, either at the time of the fall or even before that, at the very moment of creation. That just by the world being differentiated, You couldn't help but be distracted because you had one perspective and there were many possible perspectives. This sort of combination of all of these things, plus the monk's emphasis on wanting to concentrate on God as the primary distinguishing feature of monasticism means that in the Christian tradition it gets moralized. You know, it is crucial and important for distraction to be fought. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. 
Jamie Kreiner says monks of the Middle Ages believed they had to find a system to tackle distraction because they felt like it was their moral responsibility. In fact, she says, these ancient adherents passed down to us this idea that being distracted comes with a kind of morality. Today in the program, Kreiner is with us talking about her book called The Wandering Mind. It's about how these ancient monks managed to ward off distraction and how we can use those lessons today. Because she says, these strategies were remarkably sophisticated. They used meditations and memory devices and books, and they trained their bodies all to be able to pay more attention. Jamie Kreiner is a professor of history at the University of Georgia. When I was in grad school, I read a pretty chunky monastic text called The Collationes by John Cassian. It's usually translated as The Conferences. And it's structured as as a kind of dialogue. So he and his friend are going all around Egypt to consult different monastic experts on how they can be better practitioners of monasticism. And a lot of it has to do with how they can focus better, how they can be better in prayer, how they can stick to their resolution to be good monks. And it's written in this kind of sympathetic style where they will share all of the frustrations or failures or lapses they've had. And there's many passages where they describe what distraction is like for them. And back then, you know, when I was in my 20s, it was just like so shocking to see how similar some of their descriptions are, you know, like um, they'll be singing psalms, but the mind will be bouncing back to what they did yesterday or just beforehand or what they were about to do or, you know, they're sitting around reading, but really they're wondering what time it is or when they're going to (laughs) eat. That was the seed. You write in the book that not only were monks, you know, distracted like like everyone else is, but they were also preoccupied with the problem of distraction. Explain that. How did they see did they see this as a condition that needed to be puzzled over and and figured out? I think they learned that it was something they needed to give some attention to because Once they decided to become monks and had already done the enormous work of giving up their lives as they knew them, Hmm. they still found, you know, you cut a a lot of that out and, you know, maybe you're even by yourself in isolation and you still can't focus on God the way that you were sure you would be able to having, you know, made it clear that that was the priority, Hmm. that there's something sort of inherent in the way the mind is set up or in the way that the mind is embedded within ourselves and the world that it needed more discipline, more detective work to figure out like, how are we going to address this? If, If the intention is there and if we really have made good on this, you know, commitment, why is it still so hard they wanted to get this kind of mind meld with God in some ways, it seems like. The idea was to get to this state of mind, you say, where their minds would, as you put it, attain this panoramic vista of the universe. Say a little bit more about that at first here. Was it a kind of nirvana that they thought they could get to? I think it was more of taking in all of the world at a single glance. So no longer are you in some ways just guaranteed to be distracted because you're like a little piece of a huge moving system. Mm. But if you're really locked in, then suddenly it's like you can see everything at once. It all makes sense. And you don't have to jump from perspective to perspective. It's like all held in view somehow. There's this story that you relate that comes from um, this ancient text. I think it's known as the sayings of the Desert Fathers. It has a Latin name, but I was nervous about pronouncing it. Um, uh, it's from a group of Christian monks, I guess, living in the in the desert of, of Egypt. And it's about how these – the story it tells about how this group of non-Christian philosophers were kind of testing these Christian monks for their – I guess for their sense of devotion – um, say a little bit about this this particular story because it reveals that how how the, the as you say the monks' concern for distraction was was pretty unprecedented I guess. 
yeah, these philosophers are trying to figure out how they're different than monks. And they eventually get to this monk who they sort of compare notes to, like, do you fast? Because we do. And he's like, yeah, I, I fast. Um, they figure out that they're both celibate. Finally, it's like, well, I spent all this time concentrating on God. I never get distracted. They really fixated on this idea that he guards his attention much better than they do. And they decide that that is what makes a monk a monk is this really steely attentiveness. Mm. We tend not to think of it as, you know, a monk as someone who is always fighting against distraction. But in late antiquity, in the early Middle Ages, that was a, an important part of their self-identification. I, I wanted to mention for listeners the the cast of characters here, which is a huge. In the, we meet <laughs> so many different people. I can't imagine how you tried to keep track of all of these different people and their practices and where they fit in in time. But we should say you focus on men and women of, of late antiquity in the early Middle Ages. You use the term monk to include men and women. Um, talk about the, the experience of women. What Was the experience of women that much different from men in monastic societies? Well, monks didn't think that sex or gender was a substantial constraint or barrier one way or the other. Um, they didn't think it made a measurable difference in a monk's ability to conduct any of the practices they recommended or to do very well in them. But of course, gender did play a large role in how the experience of monasticism differed. Um, yeah. So even if abilities were theoretically equal, you know, women often faced different challenges. Um, so for example, they found it harder to strike out on their own, um, in part because maybe they were more vulnerable to being stalked or sexually assaulted, uh, but in part just as a pure economic constraint. They were often young when they became monks and didn't have, you know, weirdly, you did need a little bit of money to start off as a monk. You need to, like, provide for yourself, find a place to live. Um, and that was harder often for young women than it was for men who tended, we think, to become monks a little bit older. Um, for many reasons, we tend to imagine monks as being men in this period, but many of the most pioneering institutions were women monks. And we have, although they're not quite as well documented as the male monastic experience, there's still enough documentation to be not only alert to their presence, but also to see how influential they were. Jamie Kreiner, she's a professor of history at the University of Georgia. Her new book is called The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. We'll take a break, come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Great Salt Lake has reached a record low. With drought, climate change, and population growth, how can Utah better support its critical body of water? KUER is a member of the Great Salt Lake Collaborative. It's a group of news and nonprofit organizations engaging and informing the public about the crisis facing Great Salt Lake. We're also focused on solutions journalism. That means we're not just talking about the problem. We're also asking what can be done before it's too late. Learn more at greatsaltlakenews.org. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. The historian Jamie Kreiner is with us today talking about how medieval monks developed these sophisticated strategies to deal with distraction. She says they had a comprehensive way of thinking about distraction that went beyond their brains. She says they knew distraction was linked to society and money and culture, just like today. And she says these ancient techniques still work today. Her book is called The Wandering Mind. The book is full of these examples of monks, men and women, who were incredibly strong-willed, had just crazy self-restraint. Um, and there are a lot of these kind of um, – I think you described them at one point in the book as these cognitive feats in here um, – and I wanted to ask you a little bit about it. I mean, there's a litany that would take forever to go through. I mean, there's the monk early on in the book. You write about this monk named Hor, who was said to have lived in this church for you know 20 years and never lifted his eyes up to the roof. <laughs> yeah. the, uh, 
And Sarah, um, I, we don't know much about her, but I'm just intrigued by the story you, you, you say. She lived next to a river, but she was proud of the fact that her entire life she had never actually looked, did n- never set her eyes upon the river. So s- say something about that. I mean, just the they're, – they're kind of bragging about, the, about this stuff and – Maybe not bragging. Maybe that's an unkind way to describe it. They're, but they're proud of it. They're proud of this self-abnegation. And I wonder what you make of it and, and what, they were, what they were getting at with, with, with all of that. Well, yeah, I think um, the point is that they're sort of embodying this social good of attentiveness in a way that's so dramatic, it's extremely memorable and creates a kind of long-term goal for other monks to aspire to. So there are lots of examples of these extraordinary feats, but they were not the norm at all. And that's Hmm. the whole reason monks Hmm. kept telling the stories is they, they were as astonished by that stuff as we were. And I think we sort of, maybe now that it's, you know, more than a millennium and a half later, we sort of forget that the stories had that charge back then too like that wasn't normal to like not look at a river for 60 years i want to say a little bit more about the separation from god as being pinpointed as one of the causes of distraction because you say that it was they believed it was this this distraction was the result of their their separation from God at the beginning of you know creation, the beginning of time, and so in that sense, distraction you say is the sign of kind of traumatic division. So when you were distracted, it was a reminder of just how far away you were from from God. Is that is that the theory? Is that how it works? Yeah, I think sometimes when we think of distractedness, it can seem all kind of petty. I mean, there's a genuine mm-hmm. frustration about being unable to concentrate, but there was a kind of trauma there for a monk. I mean, sometimes it was just annoying, but, but <laughs> when they when they reflected about it, it did feel like, and even for the monks who had, um, you know, experienced total concentration, it felt really close to God, maybe even especially for them. The minute that you were distracted, it just felt wounding. Yeah. And the other part that is you say another way they pinpointed the cause of distraction was the will, just our lack of of it, I guess, our lack of what self self control this is one of those points where monks sort of disagreed on the diagnosis exactly, like was it because your will was too strong and you were always doing exactly what you wanted that you were distracted, or was it right. because your will was too weak and you didn't you were incapable of self control? Either way, the problem was that you were inherently conflicted, that part of it was you thought that all you wanted to do was to concentrate on the divine. But on closer examination, there are these, you know, divided parts of you where part of you just wants like a nice hot bath and to go to bed early and, um, you know, eat a big breakfast. (laughs) Yeah. Being alert to the fact that the will had this sort of bifurcated existence within you was part of the problem. Mm. One of the things that y- you mentioned was um, the, the idea of the world, um, the, the monastic experience being this separation from the world. Um, that the and, and you describe it as you know, the choice to abandon the world was for some anyway, you described this exhilarating tipping point. Um, uh, there's a, uh, uh, an Ethiopian monk named Moses who gives up a life of crime to be- become a monk. There's a shepherd named Apollo. This is kind of a grisly story. Murdered a pregnant woman just to see what a fetus looked like and then fled to a monastery, you say. Like, um, and there are a lot of these kinds of stories. Um, one man, Paul, walks in on his wife having sex with someone else and he just turns around and as you say, goes out to the desert to train, <laughs> yeah. uh, to, be a, to, be, to be a monk. So t- talk a little bit about that. Like there, there, there are a lot of great backstories here, I guess, for people who decided to head into a, um, a life of devotion, I guess. 
it's not unlike how now people are they're loving good quitting stories you know like as part of this (laughs) great resignation in the pandemic it's satisfying because it just is so it seems so uncomplicated from our perspective like you just get to do it and it's you know it's a clean break and in part those stories functioned as kind of an emphatic representation of what monks were after which was completely disengaging with the routines and the commitments that they had been so entangled in up to the point of deciding to become a monk. Like it was just sort of a, it's rhetorically very forceful to tell those kind of stories. Um, But monks also loved them because most of them did not find it very easy. Like, you know, their own quitting stories were complicated and, and incomplete um, because it, it, most of them found you can't actually give up everything, you know, family members still want to be in touch. You might have yeah. financial obligations to support dependents that you're still on the hook for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you still have to get involved in politics to a degree. If your monastery is supported by a king or a queen, you know, you, have to support yourself somehow, whether that means you own land or you work the land yourself or whatever, like you can't, can't just quit, you know, trying to feed yourself. Mm. So they sometimes told stories too about monks who had a kind of harder time, um, even from the outset quitting as a, as a kind of way of, I think, communicating empathy about how difficult it was really to let all of it go they were so attuned to how difficult leaving the world actually was. And, you know, from our perspective, the incomplete nature of most of their conversions or their, you know, uh, 180s, like it just, it's not that it was um, insincere. Mm. It's just that, you know, you can't actually really quit the world completely. That's not, you know, the world was everywhere. Wherever a monk was, there was the world. I wanted to let, let's talk about some of these um, tactics that they they use to combat distraction. One of the really intriguing parts of the book is the way these monks would, as you as you say, construct these meaningful images in their memories. To talk about the relationship between memory and attention and mindfulness, set that up for us, would you? Memory for most people in antiquity in the Middle Ages wasn't just like for us, this black box where it, you like forgot stuff all the time and who knows who knows what's going on in there. Mm-hmm. It was for them as much an instrument as it was a repository. Like you used your memory actively in order to analyze things, rethink things for yourself, create new memories that you could return to that you actually wanted to remember and meditate on. There was a lot more sense of agency, I think, in being able to take advantage of how the memory worked and manipulate it. I mean, you weren't, the memory was still going to, you know, have a semi-autonomous aspect to it. Like Mm -hmm. monks complained about how they could remember songs from their childhood or, you know, like, the stories that they had learned about Achilles and Odysseus, but um, there were always things that you didn't want to remember that kept popping back in your head anyway. But monks were more proactive than most of us are about saying, okay, well, you know, the best thing to do to um, have, you know, the kind of thoughts we want to have is to stock the memory and um, keep it moving with, things we want, you know, and that could be intentionally placing new objects in the visual field. For monks, it often meant something much more basic and comprehensive, which was to um, read and recite text so often that they became a part of the memory. Um, Like, for example, they all knew or were supposed to know the Psalms, the book of Psalms by heart. And the advantage there is that then, you know, your own words become indistinguishable from the words of scripture. Like there's, Mm. I mean, in the way that like my friends and I are just like constantly quoting sitcoms, (laughs) you know, you just have this like repertory to draw on that 
the personal and the devotional become, you know, blended. So that's another way that the memory is really important is that there's this sort of bleeding between, you know, the material outside you and yourself, mm-hmm. the mind. Yeah, it's like it's re- it remakes the mind. And then they had more sort of complex techniques of using the memory in their meditational practices to, you know, either through word associations to, you know, explore a single jumping off point from increasingly branching associative angles Mm. so they have Mm. like a more comprehensive picture of a thing that's another way you use the memory or the example um, in the book of Hugh of St. Victor's um, little book about constructing Noah's Ark um, you can move to really complex visual stagings that you create some kind of massive object in your mind whether it's an ark or something else that Um, You can explore from different angles and stock with different objects and put in a bigger picture and zoom in and zoom out. And all of these construction decisions that you're making are informed by whatever material it is that you're analyzing and anchoring Mm -hmm. in the visual field so that every artistic or design choice is also rooted in thematic analysis. And then by the end, you have this very complex structure that you can explore in your mind as you want and even, you know, redesign as you rethink different parts or see new connections that through the visual organization you wouldn't have thought of if you were just sort of reading off of a page. Yeah. We'll turn the corner here in a minute to how they how you apply some of these now, but it seems like some of these are being thought of today in some way. I, I, I guess um, I, I just found the idea, the way they constructed, um, the, the way they thought of images of like trees and ladders and these, you know, these, these visualizations, that seemed legitimately helpful, not just sort of a charming anecdote, but something that like, maybe that could work to keep you f- focused. In part, it is similar to our principle of data visualization now, which is that if you organize information in different visual formats, it will have the effect of highlighting, foregrounding, or even suppressing information that might be more or less obvious in different formats. And so simply by deciding to organize information in a certain format, does direct your attention and your focus. So for those of us who are interested in data visualization, this can be appealing simply on those grounds. And then for those of us who maybe don't care at all about data visualization, but want to remember things better or to concentrate better, these techniques um, work in part because they give your mind a little bit of something to do that it's both simple enough and interesting enough that it keeps you occupied without totally floating off into an abstraction, which, you know, can feel like um, a more tenuous state. So by sort of linking the the big picture or the sort of difficult thoughts with um, just sort of the smaller scale assignment of being like, what are you going to place on this rung or what mm. goes on this angel's wing um, is a kind of nice combination to keep the mind moving without it having, without it just sort of floating away completely. Jamie Kreiner Her book is The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. We'll take another break. Come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West. Weekends on KUER are filled with the same high-quality news and engaging conversations you hear every weekday. Have a laugh and test your news knowledge with Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Find your guide to culture and connect to creators with Bullseye. Or hear the week's latest music on All Songs Considered. The best in NPR news and entertainment awaits you this weekend on KUER. See what's in store at KUER.org slash schedule. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Back now to our conversation with the historian Jamie Kreiner. The book is called The Wandering Mind. Let's talk about the thinking about thinking, this metacognitive monitoring that monks were really good about setting up. Um, First of all, you mentioned that 
to the mind of a monk thinking about thinking was not a distraction at all. You say it was the ultimate way to steady the self. I think we sometimes worry about the more we are watching ourselves think like or worrying about like, should I be thinking about this? It seems like it's just detracting from whatever it is we actually want to be doing. But for the monks, understanding themselves in order to be able to control themselves was really important so that you never wasted your effort if what you were doing is basically watching yourself closely. And that was okay and that was good. And actually over time, they thought that through that kind of split action, uh, the mind would get better at the basic thinking part. Those sorts of meta observations were a key part of of their cognitive practices. There is the um, Basil of Caesarea. Mm-hmm. So Basil of Caesarea was one who you write about who who wanted um, the adults who supervised young monks to go around and ask them what they were thinking about and do it a lot. What was that about? You want to habituate people checking in on themselves. So at first, it's an adult doing it with the kids. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of when I was in college, I played the clarinet and my lessons teacher talked a lot about how, you know, like if I didn't have many hours in a day to devote to practicing, one of the ways to be more efficient with the studio time I did have was just to make sure I was I noticed the minute my mind went elsewhere while I was practicing something so that I could Mm -hmm. steer it back right away. This is a similar idea that the best form of defense is to be enough of a self-monitor that you know instantly when your mind is like, you know, about to or just has gone off track. And then it's much easier for you to bring it back if it hasn't been, you know, wandering for a long time. So just small little fixes throughout the day is one of the simplest ways to stay focused. Then there's the story of the desert elder who uh, he used two baskets uh, to keep track of his thoughts. You want to tell that, I think, fascinating story? That story was really popular in the Red Sea region. Um, This monk had a basket of the one was labeled good and one was labeled bad. And he had this pile of rocks and he'd start off with this pile of rocks out of both baskets at the beginning of the day. And Every time he had a good thought, he'd place a rock in the good basket. Bad thought means rock in the bad basket. And if by the end of the day, the good rocks outnumbered the bad rocks, then he could, you know, have his dinner. This is not the sort of same spectacular story as not lifting your eyes to the roof for <laughs> years on end. This is definitely more sort of like, you know, a workaday uh, geographical praise story. But at the same time, I think most monks shared it because they were like, could you actually imagine doing this all day? Like, even though thought monitoring and thought detection were really important practices for them to really do it that resolutely for an entire 16, 18 hour period, like that is impressive on its own. (laughs) Well, but you keep coming back to this. And I think it's so important to say, I think we have the stereotype typical image that all monks were like that. And the fact that these stories exist, as you said earlier, that monks themselves were sharing these stories, they were as delighted by the the kind of eccentric uh, characters out there gives you a sense that monks were way more normal and human than we give them credit for. Does, does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, I mean... I, and I think you find no one more sympathetic than these monks were to human failings yeah. that, you know, the stories are meant to be a kind of consolation, actually, because they often include struggles that even the best monks had. And at the same time, monks knew how important and valuable it was to have encouragement. So in, you know, in their hagiography and their letters and their guides, they're also just like trying to boost each other up. Like, you know, yeah, this is hard. This is the hardest thing you'll ever do. But, you know, you can also do it. And there's a lot of benefits to be had when you try. And there are all of these 
people who've gone before you who've gone through similar experiences and they're here not just to point the way ahead but also to commiserate with you when it doesn't work out so well mm-hmm. it's a very compassionate body of sources how did all of this work with prayer was prayer thought of as a time of meditation and focus and concentration or could you be distracted in prayer i mean yes <laughs> uh, prayer they got distracted in prayer enough that this was sort of one of the main motivating factors to address distraction in some detail mm-hmm. uh, prayer is just supposed to be conversation with god yeah um and on the one hand when they compared it to other moments when you're having a conversation with an important person that should be the easiest time in the world to be focused like if you're talking to a judge at your trial or if you're talking to you know an emperor mm. of course you're just going to be totally fixed in the moment you know making your case and yet monks are speaking with god the most important figure of all and <laughs> can't seem to get it together yeah. um so on the one hand you know that's part of the reason it was moralized. Like, how how can you? It it must show that you don't actually appreciate how important this contact is. And on the other hand, um, you know, in a more pragmatic sense, it's like, okay, clearly, it's not enough just to know that this matters. How are we going to, you know, double down and pray more intently? So yeah, I mean, all of the techniques that they devised, leaving the world, organizing themselves in supportive groups training their bodies, using their books properly, using their memories well, all of that stuff was in part like this ensemble of techniques designed to help prayer function more effectively. Mm. Um, But then they also, you know, talked about um, at more advanced levels what prayer would look like if it remained undistracted. And so then in, in that way offered a kind of motivational path forward too. Like if if your prayer is going really well, it could advance to these stages of lack of distraction that is so powerful. That's when you start getting those wider and wider vantage points on yeah. the universe. And ultimately yeah. as you're, you know, sort of moving into this increasingly large macrocosmic picture. Um, it eventually comes to a standstill and then the mind isn't moving at all. And that's, you know, that's true yeah. concentration. Well, before we get there, because I do want to talk more about pure prayer because that's fascinating. But just I, I liked some of the techniques that they they used, they employed to make, you know, prayer better. One of them was this corralling um, – was to as you, this is how you put it in the book how to imagine the mind corralling its thoughts back together as one writer put it gathering in the thoughts of our minds from all over the place that seems great you know just taking all these these and gathering them in that that seemed like a really good technique they tried out so many different metaphors for these sort of reflective moments where you sort of check in and say, okay, mm, here's, mm. here's what we're going to do. Because I mean, in part, the different metaphors reflect different theories of like, what's at play in a given situation, like how your mind's working. But it's also, I think, just a, a creative effort to say, you know, which of these stick for you? Like, does it help you to think about corralling your mind's thoughts altogether? Mm-hmm. Or does it help for you to think of <laughs> letting your thoughts run all over the place and then like jumping out at them to scare them to see where they landed. You could try them all um, and then find one that really resonates with you. Yeah, I love the, the, the there are a lot of metaphors in this book which are great. You know, the idea of comparing concentration to a, you know, a fish swimming in the depths or a potter, you know, throwing a pot or a hen incubating her eggs. I mean, Snake skins to be slow. I mean, there's a there there are a lot of them. It's one of the great parts of the book. I have to say is just the many ways that they come up with to describe that predicament of being distracted. Yeah, in part, it's just a testimony to ha- what wonderful writers they are. Yeah, and in part, I think it's a reflection of how they're really trying to grapple, like what is exactly the most precise way to describe what's going on. Because if we can find the perfect metaphor, 
that will also help us then deal with what we've diagnosed. This one I, I did want to uh, key in on because I think as a strategy, it's really um, kind of important. Monks um, urged each other to think of thinking as a life or death situation. And this idea of thinking about death was also – seems like a kind of a strategy. W- will you work us through this? Contemplating your own death as a way of just reevaluating your priorities. Like if I die tomorrow, will I be happy with how that narrative arc concludes? Mm. Part of it is is then motivational too. Like if the answer is no, <laughs> I would like more time for X. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you start shaping up now and maybe you're more inclined to concentrate on the things that you care about knowing that life is limited and did you really just want to be thinking what you're going to have for dinner all the time or did you really want to be thinking about you know the logic that pieces the cosmos together um that's that's part of it i think yeah. you know they're also really excited and stories that monks have about visions of what they see in the afterlife because I mean they're also uncertain about the cause and effect relationships you know like I mean we might assume that because they're monks they just like have total confidence that if I do x then y will happen after I die but they needed reassurances and they wanted Mm. confirmations all the time and so if a monk was lucky enough to have a vision of what lay beyond or even, you know, how that particular monk, you know, what their fate looked like, you know, that was really beneficial for everyone else. They did all sorts of interpreting to, to make sense of those visions, which were often cryptic too. I mean, it wasn't easy to sort of decode what those visions meant, but um, monks kept doing it because they were deeply curious about what we could know about how exactly your actions on earth manifested themselves afterward. I, I want to come back to something you were mentioning a moment ago because I think it's worth underlying. And it's one of the things you mentioned is this this practice or state of mind called pure prayer or undistracted prayer, which was sort of seen, you, you say, as kind of the, the most advanced state of prayer pretty much that anyone could actually handle. Like this was... I don't know if it's like exactly nirvana, but this is the moment, right? Um, and it was a, it was for the experts. It wasn't just for anybody. What what was say more about what pure prayer was was? Pure prayer was originally theorized by a monk named Evagrius of Pontus in the fourth century, but it got really elaborated by monks after him, in particular by monks writing in the East Syrian tradition in the seventh and eighth centuries. They were especially fascinated by what it meant to be in a state of undistracted or pure prayer mm-hmm. and eventually came to conclude that once you had sort of escalated through these stages of concentrated prayer, of moving between the big and small picture of the physical world, of um, you know zooming further and further out, Um, eventually everything comes to a standstill. There's no Mm -hmm. differentiation of objects at all because by definition to be undistracted, there couldn't be motion anymore. And there couldn't be even the mind's ability to be meta, to watch Mm -hmm. itself thinking that had to stop because that itself was a form of division. And when everything came to a standstill that is that is pure prayer the mind is totally motionless just in a a complete state of absorption um either in the presence of the divine or absorption with the the divine and it didn't last you couldn't you couldn't just stay there because mm-hmm. you were a human and it was metaphysically impossible to stay there forever um and so even the experts who felt something like that um, or could at least imagine something like that would also the same people would describe this sort of shattering feeling of coming back to just like thinking like a normal person again where the mind kind of bounced around and it you know it was so glorious to be in that state of pure Mm -hmm. prayer and so 
um, one monk compared it to being widowed. Like you, it was like you had lost the closest thing in the world to you. I mean, that's part of the reason too, that they were so generous with their empathy is that, mm -hmm. you know, there was no monk alive who didn't know how awful it felt to be separated from the thing that you wanted to be fixated on. Yeah. So earlier on, we were talking about how this amazing collection of, you know, zealots and disciples came up with this set of practices of being more attentive in the world. Um, is there something, a practice, a ritual, an idea, a habit, maybe? Have you adopted any? Do you think about these things? Sometimes I use the more complicated visualization techniques to think through a problem or some of the simpler visual mnemonics just to put together a grocery list or something really basic that's <laughs> right. not at all serious. For me, um, the bigger um, sort of lesson that I remind myself of sometimes if I'm frustrated is um, the basic view that monks had that the mind was um, tied to so many other things. It's not mm -hmm. just like a brain in a bubble that if there's a problem, you know, it may be that a single fix isn't enough, like just turning your phone on do not disturb mode and that not working for you, like shouldn't be the end of your attempts to work mm -hmm. something else out, like yeah. to sort of imagine, okay, um, have I, you know, prioritize things, right? Like, have I said no enough, you know, monks cut off, cut out a lot of things in their lives. So disengaging from things that maybe aren't important, or, you know, have I considered my physical training? Like, what is my exercise regimen? Like, you know, mm. the monks cared about that. What am I, um, you know, isolating myself effectively, or um, drawing on social support effectively? Do I have a healthy relationship with my technology the way that they tried to cultivate with their books? Um, and then, yeah, and then, you know, just sort of checking in on where the mind is going. I don't, I'm not saying like I do all of these things uh, regularly, but I think mm -hmm. just sort of sifting through the options and, and, you know, trying one thing on for a bit to see if maybe that will help. Should, would another technique complement it? I think that's that's been sort of a useful framework. You, you also say, though, that um, monks, they give us someone to blame for distraction um, because <laughs> they, they moralized distraction. And, and that's an influence that we have taken on today. We moralize distraction. What, what, do, you, what do you make of that? I, not, not, you don't need to say if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but we do burden the idea of attentiveness and mindfulness and being distracted um, in, in, a, in a way that's, that is noteworthy. It does seem like moralizing. I think um, maybe one of the surprising sides to that is that, you know, there being this continuity that for, you know, various reasons we have mistakenly assumed is just a result of our like current yeah. digital late stage yeah. capital yeah. situation. Um, and I think, you know, one of the fun things about studying pre-modern history is these unexpected through lines and in a world that is not superficially deeply Christian anymore, mm -hmm. there is this, there is this continuity that is, that is deeply Christian. You know, I mean, I, I'm not the only historian to have pointed out how our rhetoric of attention is um, indebted to Christianity. I mean, historians and literary scholars of later periods have, have shown this too. I do think that it's steeped in this early monastic tradition, but in order for it to have had the impact or the um, endurance that it's had today, you know, there had to be successive generations that kept kept activating it, you know, mm. that um, even after this, the world of the early Middle Ages transitions into other stuff, you still have this um, common denominator of, you know, a very Christian sense of attention. And that's pretty interesting, because to us, it looks like a secular issue. Um, 
and in a way it is, but it's also got this, you know, um, this deep Christian history. Let me ask you finally, um, you, you mentioned how the monks believed that, you know, all of these strategies that you, that you go through in the book, um, you know, reviewing our day, um, watching our thoughts as they arise, being mindful of our mortality, setting goals, reading things that matter to us, training our bodies to be- – all of that would w- work best, you say, if monks believed we also saw things more structurally. What do you mean? I think mostly the the contemporary discourse of dealing with attention is so centered on the individual. Like, what are you doing with your habits that, mm-hmm. you know, make an improvement? But we, you know, live in a world full of relationships and uh, we live, yeah, and as, as part of a bigger ecology of interdependent and fluctuating systems. So, you know, it's no wonder that we have attention issues when we live when we you know are dependent on devices that you know are marketed to capitalize on our attention like thinking about that as a structural issue like how our economy is structured how our own motivations are shaped by those structures um or you know how we engage with other people like our our work and family environments have a lot to do on our attention too um so they never left it up just to single individuals to fix. It was also um, looking at, you know, what are the political, economic, and social factors that have also, you know, structured a person's life. And it's always here, right? That was the other thing. It's just like that this is a persistent problem and that's that's important to acknowledge if you're going to try at all to be more attentive to the world, I guess. Yeah, it helps make your goals more realistic, I think. You're not going to never get distracted because the moment you do, well, then you just feel like you should give up entirely. And instead, just improving your attention rather than uh, being 100% attentive. (laughs) Uh, That really makes a difference in how, you know, how your day feels at the end, whether you succeeded or not in what you'd set out to do. Jamie Kreiner, thank you very much. Thanks, Doug. Jamie Kreiner. She's a professor of history at the University of Georgia. Her book is The Wandering Mind, What Medieval Monks Tell Us About Distraction. Radio West is a production of KUER. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Twitter, at Radio West. The program is produced by Benjamin Bombard and Tim Slover. Carrie Watson is our executive producer. I'm Doug Fabrizio.